Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Problem. Yeah, thank you. Hey, um, Zach, are we recording? Yep, we're up. All right, man. Well, let's let's get rolling. Craig, where are you at right now? You're in. Are you in California? Or are you in Hawaii right now? I know you guys bump back and forth, right? Uh, we're actually in in uh, Wisconsin. Oh, that's not Hawaii or California. Yeah, yeah. That's why we go to Hawaii. <laughs> cool. Uh, I was in Wisconsin for about twenty years, but in Phoenix uh, now. But I can remember those Januarys and February. <laughs> that's why we leave in January and come back in March. <laughs> there you go. You got it down pat. <laughs> where where do you guys go in Hawaii? Uh, Maui, uh, kind of the southwest Maui area. That's that's one well, I haven't been there. I've been to the other most of the other ones. I haven't been to Maui yet. So cool. Uh, it's nice. Um, so Craig, let's. Uh, you know, I'm familiar with you and your wife. You know, I know certainly she's pretty famous in the world, the ketogenic world, with a lot a lot of her uh, recipes and cookbooks. Yeah. And people are raving about the food she makes, and so I know that is part of what you guys are doing. But I know there's more than that. So tell us a little bit about your story, and, and so we can kind of introduce the listeners to who you are, what you're about, and then we can kind of get into some questions. Sure. Um, we got an interesting background. You know, we, Maria's been in this a very long time. Like you said, we, uh, she started out kind of, we had a difficult time around 2007, you know, when that whole uh, housing crash and all that happened. And so she started going down a path to make some money uh, for her, on her side of the, you know, partnership with us. And it, that took her down this path of nutrition, which she had went to school for, but she wasn't really doing much with. And herself, she had all these issues that she had IBS, she had acid reflux, she had weight issues, even though she was running marathons and doing all the things she was told to do, like uh, you know, eating whole grains and keeping low fat and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't working for her. And so she's just knew there had to be a better way to do this. And so right out of college, she just started researching everything she could get her hands on and changing her lifestyle and seeing the changes in her body. Her, her IBS went away. Her acid reflux went away. She lost 60 pounds and, you know, all these th changes in her body that she was able to fix herself. And with that, she start, just started naturally people asking her what she was doing and and started coaching other people on how to do it. And she's been coaching people on keto for, I don't know, 16, 17 plus years now. And so through that very long time frame, we've gained a big audience. And that enabled me, I was, I, my background is actually in electrical engineering. So I'm another one of these engineers that's gotten into this nutrition space. <laughs> like there's so many, it seems like there are right now. Um, and it just, I, I started looking at it and I've actually pulled away from my job to, because we had enough business going on to focus on this full time. And being an engineer, I just dove in and re read all the research I could find and started looking at it again from a data perspective, from a systems perspective of 
how our body works, you know, the inputs and outputs of foods and inputs. And if you mess that up, you get bad outputs, you get bad, you get autoimmune diseases and issues. So I, I kind of came on board then like 10 years or so ago. Hey, Craig, let me ask you a question because you guys you obviously been, been in this space for quite a number of years now. You've seen a lot of things come and go. What have you seen in the ketogenic world that you think has, you know, kind of been a mistake? You know, things that you <sighs> thought were, were maybe the way to go. And, and like anything, we learn more as, as people do things and we experiment. What, what things do you think were, were, were early mistakes you guys made and, and what have you done differently over the last few years? Um, I think very early on, you know, 10, 12 years ago, we probably had an we unnecessarily restricted protein. Um, you know, we would look at, you know, more almost like protein is a limit, you know, maybe 8.8 .8 times your lean mass, but don't go over that. You know, in the last eight to 10 years, you know, eight to 10 years ago, we started reading more and understanding gluconeogenesis more and how it's a demand driven process. It's not really based on supply. And just with ourselves, you know, we can eat pretty much as much protein as we want and we never affect our our, our state of ketosis, if you will. Uh, that's probably a big one. But right now, I'd say today, uh, we've never really made this mistake. We've always told clients, never drink your calories, never add fat just to add it. But I will say across the board, we get it every day. The Bulletproof coffees, the fat bombs, the fat fasts is a big mistake. And I, for us, it's not just uh, that it's unnecessary. It's that Number one, you're probably going to leverage by, by adding fat, you're probably going to limit protein, which is not good. And the other part of it is nutrient density of the food. You're substituting something that's huge nutrient density, animal protein, for something that has almost no micronutrients, fat. And that's just the wrong way you want to go if you want to heal and lose weight. Yeah, and I think this is a, a misconception in the low-carb, ketogenic, even the carnivore world in general, to think that you can eat unlimited amounts of, you know, non-nutritive calories like fat and it not make a difference. I think calories, you know, they still have an impact on us. There's, it's not a free card. You can eat as much as you want. Now, when you're eating highly nutritious food, it's very difficult to eat a lot of excess calories. And there is an advantage, particularly with protein. I mean, no one even, no one can test that. Even the, the diehard calories and calories out guy, they will always caveat that protein allows you you know more leeway and then and then yeah. whether or not carbohydrates do that or not that's still debatable but i mean there's certainly evidence that would support that thing and so i do think that i agree with you 100 drinking your own drinking calories is by and large unless you're trying to gain weight yeah probably a bad idea for most people and most people aren't in a situation where they're trying to gain most people are overweight uh but i think that uh you know the the whole yeah the the, the bulletproof coffees the fat bombs to me you know maybe an occasional treat you know maybe you know to make life more psychologically, uh, you know, sustainable that you want this little dessert treat every once in a while and that, that works. But I don't go into that thinking I'm doing some sort of metabolic magic by sucking down, you know, 300 calories of butter. I mean, I, I just think exactly. that, is, that has been a, an unfortunate thing. And I think there's a lot of people that have found that their, their, their results have been compromised because of that, even though they may initially feel good with ketosis and we've gotten you know, even when we, people call it a ketogenic diet, we, we, I think they put too much emphasis on the ketones and not enough on the, the results, you know, the, the objective results that we really want. Exactly. Was, and sorry, oh, go I'm ahead. sorry. I was just going to say, what was the, I guess the, the spur to go more on the low side or the limit protein within the ketogenic movement? Because when you think of some of the older high fat 
kind of movements like the early Atkins, they were, they were very high on protein. So like, what do we know? What exactly were we looking at like a different set of individuals with different circumstances that were trying to bring their protein down? And then that just didn't necessarily apply to the general person practicing a high fat diet. Yeah. I think, I think some of it derived from, you know, we started getting more and more clients and I'm sure this maybe happened in, with other people and you start getting people like type one diabetics and you, realize that they have to bolus or, you know, add insulin for protein at about half the rate of carbohydrates. So you say, oh, well, there must be something going on there with the protein. And you start looking into it and you kind of go down this one path of, okay, the, they're at, when they have so much protein, their glu- glucose goes up, so they have to bolus for it. But th- that's a misconception because if you look at the biology and the science of what's happening in that situation, when you eat protein, your body produces insulin and it produces glucagon. The reason being when you, when it produces insulin, you you need insulin to utilize protein in order to utilize that protein, you need some insulin. And so what happens when insulin goes up, your glucose is going to go down if there's no carbohydrates in the meal and the body knows this, the body's smart. So it also stimulates glucagon to tell the liver release some glucose into the bloodstream so that, the glucose doesn't take a dive when you just eat protein. The glucose stays stable because the insulin went up. That's what's really happening. So you're not seeing in a type one diabetic, they're not making insulin. And so they have to bolus insulin for that glucose coming out of the liver, not gluconeogenesis turning that protein into glucose. So I think it was just a misunderstanding of the biology. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. We're, we're seeing a lot of people, and I've seen, you know, obviously in this carn- carnivore space that I'm in, people eating a lot of protein. I mean, they're eating, yeah. you know, 150, 200 grams at a setting and sometimes three, 400 grams a day. And they still register, you know, a relatively high amount of ketones for those people that do that. But more importantly, they don't tend to see really high glucose spikes, you know, and this is, yeah. you know, maybe the type one diabetics initially have a little different response, but I mean, uh, they're just not seeing that. In fact, when I test my own blood glucose, and I know people have kind of uh, questioned my glucose because it, it tended to be higher, but mine after meals postprandially was either no change, very little change, or even would go down. And I think that's, uh, you know, again, yeah. that, that is that insulin insulin spike that you get with protein. But again, we, we sort of, we, we go to the extreme, we find, well, too much insulin is bad, therefore yeah. our goal is zero. And, and that's not the goal. The goal is the right amount. And I do think that, you know, you know, in my view, a, a animal based diet, you know, with, with other things added appropriately is tolerated is a pretty appropriate diet. And the insulin response you get in response to that is probably the, the appropriate amount. I think the same thing we can make the argument with the microbiome. You know, I think, again, we have this sort of, uh, we think based on very really weak evidence that a particular microbiome is the suitable di- microbiome for all people in all situations. And I, and, I, and I would argue that no, the microbiome that you get when you are healthy, you know, whether it's That's what on, you want, on, yeah. on a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet or a, you know, Mediterranean diet or, or a keto diet or a carnivore diet, if you are healthy and all systems are go, that's the microbiome that's appropriate. And we shouldn't be chasing and manipulating these variables that we really ultimately really don't really know anything about what it means at this point. I think it's a lot of this putting the cart before the horse, horse stuff and, uh, Again, it's more stuff that causes anxiety, and, and it's a lot of waste of money, in my view. Yeah, I think a couple points on that. Number one, I think, uh, like you, you said, I think there's another misconception, not as big as the drinking your fat issue, but 
uh, one that your blood glucose should never go up and that you should never have any insulin around. And then that's not a, that's a, you know, another view that really doesn't help you in the long term. You know, you need some insulin, you need insulin to use protein. You need some insulin to store fat. I mean, you eat fat, you're going to get a little bit of insulin that goes up and that's not a problem. Um, and another, another point on that is, um, yeah, the microbiome, you know, a lot of what th that, you know, the microbiome and, you know, blood markers and all these things are based on somebody eating the standard American diet. That's what we know today. So we say, oh, this is a typical person. Well, a typical person eating the standard American diet might not be the ideal case. And so if your microbiome looks a little different, we don't know if that's good or bad, you know, because we don't have a baseline for somebody eating carnivore or somebody eating keto of what that microbiome should look like. Yeah, I think we have, you know, this bias about what we think is an idolized diet and, and, and certainly the, the prevailing uh, wisdom out there, if you will, I don't, I don't want to call it wisdom, but the prevailing thought is that, you know, a plant-heavy fiber-rich diet is the ideal diet for humans and therefore the microbiome that's induced by that diet must be the best microbiome. Ideal. Yeah. I think that's very myopic and it's very uh, short-sighted. Um, to, to go down that route rather than saying, okay, how do we objectively assess if someone's healthy or not? Big picture wise, you know, are they, are they depressed? Do they have bad digestion? Do their joints hurt? You know, so on and so forth. And, and, and you find the people that, that are all healthy with, with those metrics and then say, okay, what does their microbiome look like? And then you can yep. say, well, maybe this is a reflection of health and this, you know, obviously there's certain bacteria C. difficile, you know, salmonella, shigella, all these things we get that are obviously pathogenic are problematic. But beyond that, you know, it's, it, to me, it's, it's, it's really, I think it really misleads a lot of people at this point. And unfortunately, hopefully some common sense will prevail out there. Craig, let me ask you, so in, in this ketogenic sphere that you, and you guys do, I guess, coaching and, 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 you know, and showing people how to do, who are your typical clients? Are you dealing with high level athletes or is it mostly just kind of the normal person trying to get their health back? Uh, we've worked with the full range. I mean, we've worked with, at this point, after, you know, 17 plus years of doing it, we've worked with just about every kind of condition you can imagine. And I would say that almost every single case gets improved with this lifestyle. So that's part of this too, that um, everybody looks at keto as a weight loss thing. And we have so many clients that they come to us and they keep doing keto, not because they lost weight, but because how good they feel, how their acid reflux and went away, their autoimmune problems stopped or reversed. You know, all of these issues, obviously diabetes and these type of things, their body feels so much better that they keep doing keto because of how good they feel, not because of the weight loss. The weight loss is like a side benefit, you know, from how good, how good they feel. And so... But I'd say by far the average person we work with is probably, you know, a middle-aged woman who's looking to lose weight and maybe get rid of some, uh, you know, issues or problems that, that they have with autoimmune disorders or that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, would you, have you, or Zach, did you have something? I was just going to ask, like, with, because uh, I'm really interested in just the types of, or what, what people come to you with, like, because, um, you know, I've, I've been doing a high fat approach for just over seven years. And when I consult people, they're usually coming to me 
because they're doing some sort of sport or exercise and they're, they're wanting to know kind of what I've done in the presence of exercise within a high fat diet and how I've manipulated and this, that, and the other thing. So like, I'm always curious what folks like you are doing or like what type of people are coming to you and what type of questions they're asking. Are they coming in saying, Hey, I've been trying keto for two years. I just can't quite get it to work right. And then you fine tune stuff for you getting people coming in saying, uh, I'm a wreck. I'm, I've tried a bunch of different things and uh, I think this might work. Help me learn keto. Uh, or is it just a spattering and hard to really know? It's across, it's wide ranging for sure, but there's definitely some streams of consistency that we see in certain conditions, you know, like MS, we see a big improvement with MS patients when they, you know, turn keto. Um, there's, you know, we have quite a few Parkinson's examples, you know, we have, and it ranges so much like alopecia a woman who had 10 years had had not had a haircut and she went keto and this in our version of keto is a little different than you know like the some of the versions out there we're very much focused on whole foods uh keto where you're eating you know quality foods quality sourced you know animal proteins uh that kind of stuff and it's it's a focus on healing as well as, you know, just the aspects of keto. Uh, Nutrient-dense foods are very important to us. You're getting those vitamins and minerals to help heal your body. Um, but I, I just did a, a couple months ago, I did at Low Carb Houston, I had a presentation, and I dedicated like the last 10 slides to just testimonies. You know, we've done this for, like I said, 17 years, but about eight or 10 years ago, we were getting all these testimonies from people about all these conditions that, you know, and their improvements. And I just said, you know what, these might be valuable, so I'm gonna save them. <laughs> and I started accumulating this folder. We've got like 2000 testimonies plus in there. And I, I swear nowadays we get five, six a day. Uh, Marie just sent me one of a guy who lost like 130 pounds and reversed his diabetes and everything this morning. Um, but what I did is I accumulated those and did a little synopsis of them for different conditions. And everybody in there was just kind of shocked, you know, and Dr. Westman came up to me afterwards and we're going to work with one of his uh, assistants to get some of these put into papers because there's stream. Like I said, this is not a one-off. You get five, six people that have similar results with MS or with, you know, cogn cognitive issues or with, Lyme disease or, you know, these different situations where you see these, everybody sees improvement, there's something going on there. And that, that's worth publishing and talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think, and this is a, this is a paradigm shift as far as I'm concerned, you know, traditionally, the way we sort of do research, you know, we solve a problem, or we think we, we try to solve a problem is, you know, there's a you know, say somebody's got psoriasis and it's a difficult problem. And so we, you know, a researcher says, I've got a great idea. I've got a drug that I think might work for psoriasis. You know, I'm going to put it into development. Then I'm going to test it on animals. And then I'm going to, you know, submit a research proposal, uh, you know, to an institutional review board, which, you know, it may take a year or two to get that passed. And then you've got to gather the funding for the study, get the, patient, get the patients to participate. You get, you know, maybe 20, 30 people to participate you know, it may take two or three years to run the study, you know, you publish it, it goes into some obscure journal, you know, maybe it's in a yeah. decent journal, a few people read it. And, you know, and it adds a little bit of knowledge, uh, and maybe it's rep reproducible or not It's a very slow process. And I think the way that we can, you know, you can just say, okay, we've got, 
X million sufferers of disease X, you know, maybe it's psoriasis, maybe it's diabetes. And we can say, hey guys, we need your help. What are you doing? What are the millions of you, hundred thousand of you guys doing? What's working for you? You can go back to those people and say, we've got it. We've, you know, we've got a study of, you know, 200,000 people that all say this works. Now there, there, there's obviously flaws with that and problems with that, but, but that is a valuable tool and a very powerful way to get some data. And like I said, the cream will rise to the top, you know, it'll either work or it won't. And I think that is going to be a paradigm that is happening already, you know, through social media. And there's a lot of people that ridicule that stuff. But I think if you're open-minded enough and you say, look, you know, we've got lots of people that are getting better this way. It's not, you know, it's, you know, and I, some people say it's like going to Lords and, you know, praying in the water or something yeah. like that. It's a miracle. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's some of that, but at the same time, there's a, a lot of objective stuff coming up there. I mean, people that show their blood pressure objectively goes down Their Hemoglobin A1C objectively improves their, you know, markers of inflammation objectively go down. I mean, that stuff is not placebo and miracle stuff. And so I think, you know, we have an opportunity and really a duty to, to pursue this stuff. And, and there's so many people that are out there that are willing to share their stories. And I do think, you know, you should publish those you know, 2000 case reports, compile them, collate them, put them up yeah. by category. That's what I'm trying to do at meatheels.com. You know, we're doing that. It is having an impact and it's probably having as much or more of an impact than, than some of these guys that are doing lifelong research. And, but I, but I think it's just a, a very powerful tool and I think we will continue I, to utilize that. I agree. Uh, you know, and Dr. Westman and Dr. Ali, I think it was, and I, we were, we were discussing this and Dr. Westman said, we need more N equals many, not, not more. Cause you know, as a doctor, what's the most important thing? Outcomes. You, what does my patient leave me in better condition than when they arrive? That's the most important thing. You don't care if it took diet to get there. You don't care if it took a prescription drug to get it. As long as they leave in a better outcome, that's your job, right? And um, I think that's what the power of these are is if you can show outcomes and repetitive outcomes that show people getting better, that's powerful and that's important. And, you know, regardless of how you got there, it's, if it's a consistent pattern that keeps happening, it's important. I mean, we had on my sl that set of slides, which I can provide for you if you, if you like to link in the uh, show, but th those testimonies, there's, a, there's one uh, whole slide on, you know, uh, diabetes testimonies. One of them, he had a A1C of 10.9, I think it was, in three months. Now, if you know hemoglobin A1C, it's a, roughly a three-month average uh, uh, blood sugar reading. In three months, it went to 5.3 with this lifestyle. And that's going from extreme diabetic to normal range in three months. And, and that's just, you can't discount that. <laughs> no, I mean, you can't. And I, and I think there's people that will say that, uh, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of people out there who will say, and we'll go back to this weight loss thing. They'll say, well, they lost weight. Of course, any, any diet that makes you lose weight is going to be a good situation. And, and there's some yeah. truth to that. But at the same time, I see plenty of people that are not obese, not yeah. overweight, that have autoimmune diseases, that have irritable bowel syndrome, that have Crohn's disease. They're underweight. And diabetes. And their diet and diabetes too. And they change their diet and they still get those results in absence of weight loss. I've seen countless people with significant joint pain prior to any weight loss or more than maybe a pound or two. Their joint yeah. pain goes away often within days. Yep. To me, that is not just a weight loss effect. And I think we have to respect that. Now, certainly an obese person losing weight is generally always going to be a good situation. But sure. at the same time, I think there's more, more to this. And I think there are 
things in the diet that you know either they cause inflammation or leaky gut or something else uh, and we have to start to really dig into this stuff yeah and, and but like you said it definitely beyond i mean weight loss is always going to be good but we've got plenty of testimonies of we even had a, a woman uh, that was 120 pounds and she was type 2 diabetic and you know this gets into another topic of you kind of the well, what is your personal fat threshold and that's why you know, once your fat cells get overstuffed and inflamed, you become insulin resistant, whether you have just a few fat cells or a lot of them. So this woman, she only had a few fat cells, but they were all stuffed and inflamed. So she's insulin resistant at 120 pounds. She did not need to lose weight, but we reversed her A1C again within a few months without any change in her weight. So, you know, and, and there's another example in our, and that's the slides. I can't remember the exact details, but is it, he, they actually needed to gain weight because they were underweight because of their condition. They gained weight and reversed their symptoms. Um, so, you know, it goes beyond that for sure. Yeah, no, undoubtedly. Um, what, uh, you know, what has been some of the, uh, you know, have you found, and I say you said that everybody that sort of adheres to the diet seems to do better. I mean, that, I mean, certainly we see out there and, and again, and this goes a little bit with like, you know, we talk about when, when, when people are critical of vegans and vegans will, and, and when their diet fails, you know, the, the, the typical uh, cry is, well, they didn't do it right. You know, they weren't doing supplement X or Y, or they weren't eating the right food, or they didn't have the right combinations or, you know, so on and so forth. Or they were eating, you know, they weren't eating enough or too little or something like that. But with a ketogenic diet, there are clearly anecdotes of people out there say, it just didn't work for me. And I mean, I don't think, I, I think we would be, uh, dishonest to say that that doesn't happen. I think that happens in any diet, including the diet I, I'm aligned to, which is a carnivorous diet. But yeah. I think that um, in your opinion or your experience rather, what has been the things that tend to make the diet fail for people? Well, I think uh, when we get people like that, number one by far is they're doing too much fat and not enough protein. And you can, you can do keto a lot of bad ways. You know, you can eat, you know, we, I can't tell you how many times we have women come to us that are eating 40 grams of protein a day and complaining about their hair falling out and all these issues. Well, guess what? If you don't eat enough protein, one of the side effects can be your hair falling out. You know, the uh, majority of those women, once they get their protein up to an adequate level, the hair stops falling out and they're, they get, they feel better. They get better sleep and all these issues. So I think for us, what we've seen with clients that have that issue more the vast majority of the time it's that they're not doing it right and they're not getting enough protein and they're doing the bulletproof coffees and fat bombs that are causing this problem to begin with and we definitely there are some that get more complicated and i, I think that it tends to be um hormonal in nature um we've been talking for a long time about estrogens and how the we're kind of flooded with uh, estrogens in our society these days with all the plastics with all uh, uh, Dr. J uh, actually just had a podcast with Rob Wolf on this and went into a lot of detail about it but this is something with especially with women where you get a lot of these estrogen compounds from flax from soy um, and you get an imbalance in the body and when you go keto and you remove that you're going to be flushing out all those bad estrogens and that can cause some initial issues in the first month or two for some women. Um, but if, if you do the right things, maybe there are some supplements that can help you rebalance those hormones 
and get that excess estrogen out of the body, that can be another situation uh, where it seems like it's failing at first. What do you think about people? I mean, the different, uh, you know, var vari variations of key. Because I did, I did a ketogenic for about two and a half years prior to adopting this carnivorous diet. And, I, you know, I played, you know, because I'm very much, uh, you know, concerned with athletic performance. I've been a competitive athlete my whole life. And so I did that. But then I also played with, you know, cyclic ketogenic diets, targeted ketogenic diets, you know, with when I was bringing cars back in and out. And honestly, for me, I didn't, I didn't notice a great deal of improvement there. You know, I didn't, I didn't yeah. see much difference, but have you played with that or, or counseled people with that, particularly with athletes with regard to that type of stuff? Um, yeah, we have, uh, like, like you said, I, unless you're really at the bleeding edge, you know, and you need that 1% of a boost, you know, that you might get from adding some very specific, you know, maybe 10 grams of glucose prior to a workout, which again, it's not, cycling carbs it's not carb loading you know it's just like 10 grams prior to a workout to give you a little extra boost that is something that you know our high you know higher performance athletes might see some benefit of but again you're talking about a, the the higher edge couple percent situation and it it can vary by person too you know like your experience it didn't didn't do a lot so um we tend to start everybody out with not doing that you know stick to keto uh, you know, focus on your workouts and strength training to build lean mass, uh, you know, and, and only if you're an athlete will we start looking at maybe targeting some, some energy but prior to a workout. Zach, any thoughts on that? Because this is kind of in your wheelhouse, mm -hmm. and you're, you are in that definitely in that 1% of the freak athletes that does stupid <laughs> stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I th it makes a lot of sense to me, what you just said, like, because that's a lot of times what I see too. It's um, you know, people want to get in debates about whether the ketogenic diet is good, bad, or otherwise for athletic performance. And it, it, it's so hard because people say performance or they say yeah. like, you know, what is performance? Are we talking about a five kilometer race? Are we talking about yeah. a hundred mile race? Are we talking about a bike race? Are we talking about a bike race where you may have to change gears a lot due to hilly terrain or a flat time trial? So, I mean, there's just so much to kind of unpack and that's even before we get to the specific purpose of that, that athletic endeavor. Um, it, it's like you said, the folks that I've worked with that are that 1%, like we're performance first at all costs. We'll fight that uphill battle with health if we do a, more training than what we're probably supposed to do and all that yeah. other stuff. Yeah, bringing back a little bit of carbohydrate seems to be a really good move. Um, I, it, especially when you have that kind of fat adapted base already in there, because then you can get away with less from my experience. Like for me, when I was a high carb athlete, uh, you know, I would routinely take three, four, and even more hundred calories per hour during a race. If I could get it in, um, you know, now I'll do the same workouts, same results, all that stuff. And, you know, I might be bringing back 100, sometimes 200 calories per hour, depending on the intensity of the event. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, I'm, I'm getting the same results in that sense, in terms of like my energy flow, my workout paces, all that stuff. So it's like bringing back that very little bit amount where when you said 10 grams, you know, I'm thinking like someone's workout is probably going to be, you know, closer to 30 to 60 minutes in most contexts. So it's like you extrapolate that forward to a hundred mile race where I'm out there for, 
you know, 12 plus hours, depending on the train, you know, it's like that stuff adds up to be pretty close to what I'm taking in uh, personally. Uh, but then, yeah, you, you get into like the, you, the more middle of the pack or the folks who are like, uh, I want to target my fastest time. I would love to you say qualify for Boston or something like that. Uh, and they have maybe 20, 30 pounds of extra weight. Uh, they have, you know, all these other obligations in life outside of their training program. So they're, they're probably not going to run and train to the degree that an Olympic athlete is going to do, you know, that those folks I think can benefit even more from like a, or can benefit a lot of times from a strict ketogenic diet too. Uh, because you know, they're not asking that last, last gear all the time. Yeah. Um, and they usually have more time between workouts. You know, one thing I notice a lot with myself too, is some of it has more to do with how much time I give myself before a workout. When I'm in peak training, I might be going out twice a day. Uh, when I'm you know, not in peak training, I might only go out once and it might be shorter and I'll have more time between. Um, so then, you know, I think I just, it's more opportunity possibly for like gluconeogenesis to meet the demands of any glycolytic thing I would do yeah. uh, versus like a five hour gap between sessions. Sure. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Hey, let's, let's uh, talk a little bit. Uh, and we've talked about this subject a little bit in the past, but what is your opinion regarding uh, electrolyte supplementation or requirements either during transition during sort of maintenance phase or during athletics? Do you have any kind of thoughts in that regard? Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things, especially in the transition phase is you're going to see people, uh, when you go keto and you cut out the carbohydrates, carbohydrates, uh, retain a lot of water into the, the body. And so when you cut them out, your, your body releases a lot of that fluid that it re retained. And with that's going to go electrolytes, your sodium, potassium, magnesium, and so it's very important in the first couple of weeks, especially as you're transitioning, to make sure you're getting your electrolytes on, uh, getting sodium, getting potassium, magnesium. Um, and so we make that a big point. And a lot of times, uh, keto flu that people talk about, that's really just dehydration that's happening when they're transitioning. Um, and getting their electrolytes in check uh, can help with that. But another thing we always point out with clients is that um, if they're coming from a standard American diet, especially you're getting so much less sodium into your body when you're eating whole foods, which don't have any sodium in them, that you really got to be mindful about adding that salt, adding those electrolytes. You know, a, a McDonald's shake has more sodium than their French fries. I mean, there's sodium loaded in everything you're eating. And when you cut that stuff out and you start eating steak, well, steak doesn't have any sodium. You got to add it. Um, so you got to be mindful about the salt and, uh, and adding sodium. But, you know, in general, one thing about electrolytes uh, that's really important, you know, so getting electrolytes up is important, but there's uh, situations like sodium and potassium where the balance is also extremely important. Um, if you have not enough potassium in the body and you're getting sodium in your diet, the body likes sodium and potassium to be in balance. So it's going to leach sodium until they're kind of in balance again. And so you're kind of fighting this battle where you're adding sodium, but it's leaching it out because your body wants sodium and potassium to be more in balance. So there in that situation, you're going to want to get, get your potassium up until you start feeling better, getting that energy. Don't get that dip in energy. And that's one thing if people that do keto long-term, if they're not mindful of that, uh, they, they may not have to be worrying so much about sodium, uh, how much they're adding, but they got to start considering potassium because if they're, 
they're not getting enough potassium, you can start seeing fatigue and issues like that later on. Yeah, I mean, we had, uh, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure you maybe wouldn't aware of a guy named James Don Antonio on. He wrote the, the book, The Salt Fix, and we had him, we had a yeah. collective discussion on that sort of stuff. And, and kind of the conclusion was, you know, in general, you know, salting to apt to taste generally works pretty well for most mm-hmm. people. We have these, you know, my, my sort of contention of, of simplicity, you know, your appetite should tell you how much to eat, when to eat, how much to drink, and, you know, how much sodium you might need. And so, that's yeah. that's kind of my you know simplistic view on things but uh you know there is obviously there are some mechanistic things that we need to know and some physiology that that goes with that and there's some situations you know like if you're going to get out there and do exactas and run 100 miles in, in phoenix or you know or wherever you know like in the middle yeah. of summer for you know you may have to be conscious of, of actively dealing with that stuff zach what do you i couldn't remember what did you what was your sodium or your, your electrolyte management during these big runs particularly when it's hot yeah, uh, you know, it it depends a little bit, but, uh, you know, I'll use a, a, like an electrolytic solution called Hydro-X that uh, has just like a blend of uh, sodium, potassium, and magnesium in it. Um, you know, all these the sports electrolyte things, they've got all the formulations dialed down to like, you know, ideally what you'd want to replace. So, you know, I would usually like if it's a really hot race, like at Western States where, um, you know, it's hitting a hundred plus degrees in the canyons. You know, I'm, I'm putting something like that in, in my, in almost all my water bottles. And I might have two of those an hour. Uh, I'd have to look at the package to see exactly how much ends up being. Um, it's a lot more than what I'd have on a daily, daily basis. But when you're processing that much liquid and managing heat to that degree, uh, it's a little different. You know, the interesting thing I always find is like when I'm in races that are lower than room temperature, like say tunnel Hill, where it was actually like below freezing for a good chunk of the race. Um, I just don't tend to drink or use as much of the electrolytes. I'll still put it in there, um, from time to time, but it's not like every bottle it could be in the heat. So, uh, a lot of times it is just kind of going, going based on how the body feels too. Like I don't necessarily feel like I need to be, you know, adding tons of salt, or tons of electrolyte solution to my drinks. If, uh, if I'm like taking in salt from something else that I'm eating during the race, or if I just don't feel like I'm losing a lot of, a lot of water and you can kind of tell like you get, you get good at knowing if you're like dehydrated or not, I guess, just from day to day training. And you kind of get an idea where you know about how much you need. And then you also get good at listening to your body's signals, like, to drink more versus just to be drinking for the sake of drinking and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think with our clients too, we do, we kind of do the same thing. You know, initially we try to get them to be mindful in that first couple of weeks of transitioning because it can be, you know, such a transition. But after that it's, yeah, mostly just salting to taste. And if over time, if that's not quite doing it, what we typically do is have, we have them switch some of the sodium for no salt, which is a potassium based salt to see if, you know, it's the balance issue that's going on. But yeah, in general, we typically just say, you know, salt to taste, salt to, to need. What, what type of symptoms are you looking for if you think someone isn't getting enough salt or potassium? Or is it, is it, is it hard to tease out which one? Um, or are there, like, I think of some, like, sometimes you look at some of these, like, the same symptoms arise from too low of those things as well as too high. Like you get water retention in the ankles and fingers and things like that. And that could happen. They're too low or too high. So how do you kind of tease that out? 
Well, uh, we, we start usually with sodium because that's usually, you know, the one that people neglect when they go to this lifestyle because they're getting so much sodium in processed foods and things that they're not aware of. Um, if that doesn't do it, then we start uh, adjusting sodium and adding more potassium, like with the no salt, to see if it's okay, maybe it's a balance issue with that sodium potassium that's causing the fatigue, you know, but, but it, all, it starts with symptoms, you know, if, if they're doing everything right with their diet and they're just not getting the energy they expect, they're getting, you know, heavy legs and that kind of stuff, then we start looking at the electrolytes. Uh, you know, if it's the other way, like you said, if they're feeling water retention and those type of issues, then maybe we'll back, tell them to back down or adjust things that way. But we just kind of go by their symptoms. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Unamate by a brand named Unicity. This sponsor is unique. It has a personal story behind it. In 2015, I started using the tea Yerba Mate. I liked it for its calm sense of alertness that it provided versus kind of the more jittery alertness that you could get from uh, more traditional caffeine sources. I even used it in 2015 at the end of the year en route to breaking the 100-mile American record at the Desert Solstice Track Invitational. The only hiccup that I have had with using Yerba Mate in training and racing has kind of been a logistical hiccup. It, I usually had to either kind of pre-make the Yerba Mate as like a hot tea or buy it in a can, which a lot of times the cans you would find had been sweetened with sugar and other things. Uh, so I was always kind of on the lookout of trying to maybe make that process a little more efficient. So after interviewing Dr. Ben Bickman for episode 13 of HPO, he had discovered that I was a fan of Yerba Mate in training and races. And, uh, he's actually been studying some of the effects of Yerba Mate and connected me with a product called Unamate, which makes kind of an instant single serving package of the tea with with these single serving packs I, I can easily kind of prepare on the fly even during a race or during a training run without having to go through all the kind of logistic steps of preparing the tea ahead of time or bringing a can full of something along with me and I actually even used it at the Tunnel Hill 100 mile this last fall where I ran the the fastest recorded 100 mile or on a trail as well as the fastest 100 mile or outright during the year for 2018. Um, so needless to say, I'm behind the product. If you'd like to try it out, please head over to unicity.com forward slash HPO. That's U-N-I-C-I-T-Y dot com forward slash HPO to get $3 off a 7-pack or $10 off a 30-pack of Unamate. Thanks again. Now back to the show. What do you guys think about, uh, you know, and, I, and I, I try to be delicate about this because a lot of people, you know, make their money on this stuff, but there's a lot of keto products out there these days. There's a lot of, you know, just bars and uh, desserts and pre-made, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting, you know, it doesn't seem to, it doesn't matter what diet that's out there. There always seems to be the processed food version of that appears immediately, yeah. whether it's vegan, whether it's paleo, whether it's Mediterranean, whether it's keto i'm interested to see how they'll do it with the carnivore diet that seems a bit <laughs> more challenging but 
uh, you know, that's out there. Do you, do you utilize those? Do you recommend those? Do you recommend them in moderation or limitation or what are your, what are your thoughts on that stuff? Uh, we, the bars, the shakes, those type of things, we don't, we, like I said, we try to make our, we have all our clients focus on whole foods, just stick with the most nutrient dense whole foods that you can get, which by the way, happens to be animal protein. You know, this is something that, you know, we talked about in our book and when I was writing this book two and a half, three years ago, and I started researching this, I was shocked that I had never heard of this. You know, I, I, I knew a lot about the body. I knew a lot about metabolism. I knew a lot about macros and things. And I started looking at what's the most nutrient dense food. Cause you always hear about the, the latest trend for goji berries or something is a superfood. And I started looking at the breakdowns of all the vitamins and minerals. So, you know, looking at everything from, you know, a wide range of pretty essential vitamins and minerals. And I compared them against beef and beef kept winning. And, I'm, you know, you put kale in there and beef wins. You put blueberries in there and beef wins. And I, I was almost pissed off because I'm like, why do, why do I not know this? Like, why is this never talked about on a commercial for beef? Or for, you know, you get the commercials for these superfoods of these fruits and things, but you never see this talked about with beef. I think it's kind of going back to, like you said, that mentality in, the, in our, our society that vegetarian's best, so we can't talk about beef being good. And they kind of upset me because, you know, if, if you look at it, if you really want to, I think this is a big part of reversing that disease process and all these things is getting the most nutrient dense foods into your body to help your body heal. Well, it turns out that that's beef. And if you want to talk about the real superfood, it's liver and organ meats that are off the charts for vitamins and minerals. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting topic too. And the way I've, Oh, I think, I think looking at that sort of stuff, I see it the same as I would kind of like a, a real treat in real life. Like, um, I'm thinking like, I mean, we've, we've bastardized that in just the general diet as well, where it's like, you know, someone's going to eat a cookie or a candy bar and it's like, do they really need that in the context of three meals a day when they're not working out at all? It's like, probably not. And then you yeah. have someone else who's, um, really got their foundation of fitness figured out. They've got their core meals in place and, you know, they're active and they want to treat once in a while. I think, okay it's a lot different of a situation um, than, than in the other part. But I think, I think where, where the keto movement has struggled a little bit is there's, there was this big wave kind of, of what we talked about earlier, where, you know, you can't touch fat in terms of, uh, you know, limit having to limit it at all. And, yeah. and we talked about that, how like that's very context based as well. It's like, do you need to lose weight, maintain weight or gain weight? Yeah. And that's going to be, a huge player in how much fat you eat if you actually put creamer in your coffee. I think the same thing with some of these other things too. It's, it's, it, it, if you have someone who's trying to gain weight, maintain weight, interactive, these can be things that they can add on after they've met that foundation. So after they've got like, you know, the really nutrient dense stuff already in place and now they're trying to, you know, make up for increased energy demands but it's something to just be kind of plowing through for the sake of doing it the way that we see people doing with normal treats is like, that's the same problem with a different, in a different environment. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's definitely different too, when you're first starting, you know, we, we tell people that in the first couple of weeks, if those cravings are going to be an issue, 
have a keto treat, you know, uh, uh, ready for it. We usually tell people to make one of our dessert recipes or something and just have that ready for, you know, if those cravings hit while you're transitioning. So, you know, I think they have rules in those kind of situations, but even then we would lean towards the non-processed, you know, packaged stuff, you know, making your own treats, uh, the keto treats to satisfy those cravings or those when you want to reward yourself or have a treat, uh, just go with those homemade options because there's rarely a a packaged item that doesn't have some sort of compromised ingredient in it or some uh, that's going to have the the full micronutrients. So again, if you, if you make a treat out of whole foods versus, you know, them taking a protein isolate and whatever and making a bar out of it, you're not going to get the vitamins and minerals you're going to get from the homemade treat. Yeah. Let me just back up. Uh, you know, yesterday we talked with Belinda Fetke, the wife of Gary Fetke, and she, you know, she talks a little bit about uh, the, you know, the history of nutrition and, and how sort of a, a vegan vegetarian influence has been there from the beginning. But when we look today, and this is something we're seeing when you're talking about where is the information on beef, a lot of the uh, search engine optimization that's being done out there is being modified and manipulated by people that are pro plant friendly. And so we see a lot of this data, you go to look for something, you look for a study on the benefits of beef and all you'll find is the negative stuff is all, always up there in the front in the search engines. And so we are, you know, the manip, you know, the, the, the sort of the information we're being allowed to have access to unless you dig for it is being presented in a plant friendly way. Uh, and I think that is something that's, you know, not to be too conspiratorial, but I think there is a deliberate, effort. And, and I think it, you know, I think the people that are pro plant are spending the money to do this. And I think it's, you know, again, it's a lot of it's just business and these guys, they, they have their agenda and they're, they're organized and they're putting out their, their, their money. And, and, you know, for some, a lot of people will criticize me for being sort of anti plant based, you know, you know, because uh, they, they want everybody to get along and be happy. But I think the sort of the passivity, you know, the pass, the, the being passive is, unfortunately not the best strategy i think we have to be active about this but i but i do think there's been you know a, a little bit of a difficult time finding real good information and hopefully more people will get out there and speak up about this stuff yeah we actually just got tagged in a thread on uh twitter about there's a, a bit of an active campaign on wikipedia to get rid of the profiles of people that are low carb ab- advocates and it's apparently driven by somebody who's very pro vegetarian and all that. And, you know, our pro Maria's profile and like three or four other low carb, uh, Dana Carpenter and three or four other low carb people got tagged to delete their pages because they're quote not relevant. Um, and that again was, uh, uh, not, not to be conspiratorial. Again, this was somebody else, uh, who was on the committee at Wikipedia stating that this is wrong. Um, and actually the, the founder of Wikipedia was in on that Twitter thread as well. But, um, so, you know, there's definitely, uh, strong influences out there from that side of the community. And I think our side has to be just as strong with their influence to combat that. Yeah. I mean, you know, unfortunately religion, I mean, I shouldn't say that nutrition is really a religious battle for a lot of people and a lot of people make it that way. And, you know, and, and again, it's, I liken it to a political campaign, unfortunately, you know, but whoever side yells the loudest, whoever side has the biggest microphone, whoever gets their message out the most, that's what people tend to believe, you know, regardless of, you know, uh, sorry, regardless uh, of whether or not it's truthful or not. 
it's whoever speaks a lot as whoever yells a lot as uh, their message tends to predominate and, and that's what people tend to believe because most people don't have time. I mean, you know, if you had asked me 10 years, I really didn't care that much about nutrition. I just worked out hard and ate what I wanted and did fine. And my head, head was, you know, down to the grindstone and cranking away in my career. And it wasn't something that really bothered me or I thought about it. It's not until, you know, you're confronted with health problems. And for, for many of this, you know, it, it tends to be later in life, but, uh, you know, unfortunately it becomes early and early for more and more people now, but for most people, it's, you don't even give it a second thought. And so, you know, you look, you know, you look up for two seconds, read the latest headline and say, oh, okay, red meat's going to kill me. It's going to give me cancer. I better not eat that. And that's all the thought many people give to it. And, and, and again, it's whoever controls the sound bites. And I think that's, that's really where we're at. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the thing, the thing that makes this so important is, you know, one of the slides I have is also about prescription drugs. Um, there was, it's a whole slide filled with people and all the prescriptions they got off of with this lifestyle. One woman was on 600 pills a month and she got it down to half of one pill a month within a couple of months of keto. I mean, we, that, I mean, think about what's a, one of our biggest healthcare costs in America today. It's prescription drugs. If you can start taking swaths of people off of these prescription drugs, you could put a huge dent in our healthcare costs in this country. So I think it's, it's a really important message that needs to get out there. Yeah. I think, I know, especially when you get into that, like the prescription medication and this uh, like kind of pills before lifestyles sort of like a model is one. I think if everyone can kind of just take a step back regardless of whether they're vegan, plant-based keto carnivore and kind of think like, well, what are our common enemies? Let's, let's join together and get rid of those. And then we can hash out some of these other issues as we get through some of the ones that are the big players, like, um, you know, prescription medication that could be easily offset by just, you know, following a, a healthy lifestyle. And, you know, we had Dr. Joel Kahn on the show not too long ago. And, you know, from a dietary standpoint, he couldn't be any, any different than, than Sean and myself, but, from a lifestyle standpoint, you know, just making sure you get those basic needs of good quality nutrition, exercise, good relationships, sleep, and that thing, you know, we're on the same page. So some of this stuff, it seems like it would be advantageous to really pioneer together um, and hopefully improve so much of all the lifestyle, regardless of what nutrition you take on, um, would be a, a good kind of first, <laughs> first act, I guess. Yeah, you know, a lot of people just can, they can come simply from that processed food world to whole foods and see huge improvement, regardless of your, you know, keto or not. So, yeah, let me just, you know, Zach, just, just to modify a little bit what you say about Dr. Khan, uh, you know, being completely opposed to what, what I do. I, I think we agree on many things. We, we both mm -hmm. agree eating a bunch of sugar, eating a bunch of processed, you know, refined garbagey stuff. None of us promote that. So I do think we have some commonalities there. We just, disagree about the healthfulness of animal products. Now, to your point about the prescription drugs, now I've gone, I just moved into a new house and we got, because we had to get cable, it had to come with this bundle, we had to get TV through Cox Cable. And I, I don't watch TV, I really haven't watched much regular TV in years. And I, and I, and I, was, I put it on and I'm literally, I mean, I know how ubiquitous these drug prescription drug ads are on TV, but it's like, after a commercial break, there's ad after ad after ad of these drugs. But the thing that's even just shocking to me is now there are ads for drugs that you take because you're already on another drug. It's like this medicine is approved because so many people are on these antihypertensive 
this medicine is goes ideal with your antihypertensive or this supplement you need to take because you're now on this drug. And, and, and the fact yeah. that we have such a high percentage of people, and I think, you know, if we look at the statistics, I think, you know, I think by 2030, I think about 180 millions are projected to have at least one chronic disease. I mean, that's more than half the country with chronic disease. You know, besides the fact that we think that, you know, 88% of us are metabolically healthy and, you know, the obesity rates are rampant, but I mean, it's just, that has become the norm and, and it's, it's normal to be on drugs. And now it's becoming, you need these specific supplements because you're on these drugs. I mean, it's just absolute madness. And to me, to see these people in our politicians argue and fight about single payer versus private pay versus who's going to pay for all this crap. Why don't we figure out how to get people off these damn drugs and stop making so many sick people by fixing our food system rather than pissing and moaning about how we're going to pay the trillions of dollars it costs to care for all the sick people. We as Americans, particularly the, one of the wealthiest, you know, the, the wealthiest nation on earth, you know, you know at, at our size should not be a nation of sick, disabled people. We should be, you know, a robust, healthy, vigorous, you know, people. And it's just, it's, it's really maddening and, and, and shameful that, that the healthcare system can't figure that out. And I think it's not that hard, quite honestly. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the most, one of the interesting points about that is you turn on the TV and all you saw was drug ads. Well, guess what? We're the only country that allows drug companies to market directly to patients. That, I mean, that should be step one and would be a huge uh, benefit because what, what do people see? Oh, I got that problem. I want that. They go to their doctor say, hey, I saw this commercial. I think this drug would really help me. And more often than not, the doctor's going to uh, let them try that drug. And if you take that away and give, put the tool in the doctor's hands to say, I think this drug's good for you, it, it completely changes that paradigm. But that's also why we started the book out, our, our book out with this root cause of disease kind of idea of this, this disease tree, right? The, the roots are the, the inputs to the system. And this is kind of my engineer coming out, but you know, what are our inputs to our body? How much sunlight we get? Uh, our nutrition, of course, is a big one. How much sleep you get, how much exercise you get. These are all inputs to the body. And if they get off, you get bad outputs. You get, you know, metabolic disease, you get disorders, autoimmune conditions. And so instead of putting a Band-Aid, a, a drug to mask those symptoms at the end of the, the root cause, go back to the root cause, fix the root causes, get you know, some exercise, change your diet, do these things that will fix the root of the disease and the disease will go away. You know, that's kind of the fundamental uh, thing we have to do in this country to reverse this problem. Yeah, Craig, well, we, I mean, you know, in all honesty, I mean, there have been people talking about this stuff for a hundred years. I mean, this, yeah. this stuff is not new. There've been people railing against, you know, uh, you know, the, the misery of how we treat people and, and how, you know, from a medical standpoint with, dr with drugs and procedures and putting band-aids and stuff, this is not new. I mean, we've known this forever. People have been talking about nutrition for, you know, since we've known about nutrition and, and nothing ever happens. Nothing ever changes. People just continue uh, to, you know, suck down the sugary flavored pills or sugar that they're addicted to and chase it with the pills. And, you know, and, and, and we're entertained by cheap entertainment and we just kinda, we're just kind of like the masses are being fed this stuff to be placated. Is, are we going to reach a tipping point? Are we at the tipping point where there's so many people that are sick and fat and disabled and miserable that enough people are going to say, I'm tired of this crap? Is social media a big enough 
tool that, and then it can change the paradigm. I don't know the answer to that. I hope we're at a point where, where that changes. I know I'm trying to do my part, but you know, it's not like we're, we're new guys doing this stuff. It's not like anything I'm doing is new. People have been talking about this stuff in general terms for a long time. It's just, what is it going to take to make a difference? Well, I think you hit on an important point there, and that's the social media influence that we're able to gain without having to go through traditional channels. You know, traditionally, uh, you know, even I think it was six, seven years ago, Maria was asked to be on a local TV show doing a bit about food, and she wanted to put up uh, boxes of cereal and talk about how bad they were and then have her version of a breakfast meal instead. They denied her to do that because guess who's across the road and the biggest sponsor of that show? Kellogg's. So Kellogg's is their biggest sponsor. They don't want her to bash that on the show. So she was not allowed to put those boxes of cereal up and talk about them when she was talking about these differences. So when you try to go through the traditional channels, and like you said, you turn on the TV, you're seeing a, a message that is not this message. And I think that's the only way that this is going to shift is if we bring other channels like social media to bring this to a wider audience and gain traction that way. And it's, it's, I don't know if we hit a tipping point from a disease standpoint, I would hope we have considering the state of America and, you know, kids at six, seven years old with fatty liver disease and obesity and all these, I mean, I would think that that would be a tipping point for me to do something about it. But, you know, it's hard to say, you know, if the message gets out there enough, but hopefully with social media and these other platforms, we can get to those people. You know, back in the, I don't know what it was, the 50s and 40s and 50s, you know, the, the, the message to, to smoke cigarettes, you know, and we saw how over time that sort of message trickled down to children. And we had kids with Joe Camel and all that stuff where they, you know, they were targeting the children that was, you know, and then we saw the same thing with junk food. But I think now we're seeing even the drug manufacturers, you know, it's like your kids need these supplements, you know, these healthy probiotics for your little kids, these healthy little gummies that your kids need to think, you know, we, you know, we're, we're sort of laying, they're laying down this groundwork to, to, to teach our children that yes, you need a supplement. You need extra vitamins because our food supply doesn't supply it. So we, they're, they're sort of building that habit that kids, even, even at four and five years old are thinking that, that that is part of the human diet that we need these supplements and then later that's going to turn into prescription drugs and they just kind of kind of build that in i see that that happening and again it's another thing that's uh you know it's just frustrating yeah and they they do kind of start them early i mean think about how many kids are on adderall or, or adhd medications you know it seems like there was almost nobody when i was in school and now it's just commonplace you know you uh, it, it seems like the first line of action if a kid's acting out is throw them on a drug and I saw my nephew, he, he was this funny, goofy, kind of crazy kid. And he, I, I think he was like uh, 13 and he, or maybe even earlier, 10 years old, he was put on an ADHD medication and he just became this sort of even keel guy. And he stayed on those till he was in his 20s. And, you know, I just don't know if that's the right avenue. And like you said, it, it puts us, now, there's definitely, you know, Maybe there's cases where those apply. I'm not saying, and this is, you know, across the board, but I think the first line of, of defense or change should be something else, maybe diet, maybe other things. We, we actually have a, a lot of clients who have kids with ADHD, with hyperactivity, 
uh, even with autism, that see marked improvements with changing their diet. And so I think maybe if we made that the first line of defense, not a drug, you don't get them trained into that, you know, apply a drug to everything mentality. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people will argue that, you know, it's hard to change a kid's diet. You know, my argument should be you shouldn't, you shouldn't you know, because they're so used to these junky, you know, sugary type foods and the fast foods and the snacks. And, you know, when I was a kid, there was something called don't spoil your appetite for dinner. You know, mm-hmm. that doesn't mm-hmm. exist anymore. It's like, oh, yeah, give, give, you know, send Johnny with six little snacks in case he gets hungry during his, his play. You know, and it's like, don't ever be hungry for more than three minutes. You know, it's like, oh, you got to immediately. Exactly. That. And I think that that is just not how we're designed. I mean, we you should be hungry when it's dinner time. You should be wanting to eat a lot. And then you can eat a lot of nutritious food. Uh, but, but that's not what we do. And schools sort of reinforce a snack. It's snack time. It's snack time twice a day when you're a little kid. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it's just so. And, and even beyond that, you know, a lot of times in schools now, they'll give out candy as rewards for doing good on a test. We had a uh, client whose daughter is a type one diabetic and she got a perfect score on her test and the teacher gave her a big bag of Skittles. And, and the, 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 the parents like, are you trying to kill my daughter? <laughs> like she knew enough not to eat it. But you know, when I was, I, I actually went to a Catholic school for elementary school. And this is back when, you know, we had nuns running, you know, they were, they were the teachers and everything. If I got caught so much as chewing gum in class, I would be in trouble with the nuns and they would take me out and <laughs> I would not be happy. Uh, so, you know, it's such a shift now where everybody gets rewarded with candy for doing good on tests. You know, they, they all have birthday parties. So when it's their birthday, they bring in, you know, uh, cupcakes and things for the whole class to enjoy for their birthday. And guess what? Because, it, you know, you're only in school a certain amount of time and you get all these kids ends up every week you have a birthday party with all these treats and it's like none of that happened when I was in there there was no food in the classroom you ate at lunchtime and that's it um, I think we got to go back to that instead of this I, I, there's actually a, if you're familiar with the onion it's a satirical mm-hmm. uh, magazine out of Madison actually they had an article that came up that just made me laugh and it says uh, average American now eats one continuous meal a day <laughs> and it's so true. I mean, you just see these, you know, we go to the zoo and kids are in strollers, not even walking, and they've got these bags of goldfish and stuff just constantly eating. It's just a constant supply of snacks and food. And we, I think we got to get back to the way, we, way it used to be. You eat, you didn't spoil your dinner and you ate when you, your parents had the meal ready. Yeah. And I think too, like the big no brainer in all of that is like, if you just re if you just decide, okay, I'm going to try to be healthy through, through nutrition and exercise and better sleep and all that stuff, which I think all is kind of tied into nutrition. It's like, you're just switching out one expense for another. Like nobody has a zero expense food bill, um, regardless of what they're eating. So like you can just reallocate what you are spending on groceries towards the things that you should be eating you know, and then we're just eliminating a massive expense with, with all the, you know, drugs and additional things that you need. And the snacks and everything too. I mean, we, time and time again, we have people who really account their grocery bill when they switch this way, even when they go to like quality uh, animal protein sources and whatnot, their grocery bill goes down and it can go down pretty significantly. We had a girl who was a vegetarian and she had to go shopping like every couple of days to get piles of fresh vegetables because all you're eating vegetables and they get they need to be fresh uh her bill went down like a hundred bucks a week 
eating this way, nutrient dense, you know, animal proteins primarily. Um, so you can actually save money. And this is kind of harsh, but it's also true in that, yes, it's not going to be easy, but I don't see a lot of eight-year-olds in the grocery store shopping and buying groceries, right? What you bring into the house is what they're going to eat. And it's not going to be easy, but you clean that house out and only have you know, good options, healthy options to eat, they're going to eat it. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me just, uh, cause you talk about vegetarians. I know there are some vegetarians or vegans even that, that, that do a keto version. Do you uh, do much with those folks? Is that part of your, your sort of uh, repertoire as far as what you might deal with? Um, we, so we've had a few vegetarian vegan is another thing. And then the, the nuance there is eggs. Um, I don't think anybody can eat a healthy vegan diet because you don't get enough complete animal proteins, complete amino acids to maintain lean mass. And we know that as, especially as we age, you lose lean mass and that's, it's a, you don't want that. You don't want to be frail when you're old. And when you're vegan, the plant, I mean, uh, plant protein sources are just not there for those complete amino acids. Uh, it, it, the typical ones people talk about you start getting into these estrogenic problems with soy and, and flat and you know, these type of things. Uh, but you know, if you go back to what stimulates muscle protein uh, synthesis, uh, the protein in like wheat, it doesn't matter how much you get. It never st- stimulates mTOR to, to generate muscles. Uh, it doesn't have the right amino acids. Uh, if you do whey protein, it's only like 20 some grams that you need to stimulate mTOR beef, maybe like 30 grams. So I just don't think it's sustainable. I don't think it's any, any healthy at all. Now we do have clients that for, you know, their own personal preference, don't want to eat animals. And so we did provide a vegetarian meal plan in one of our books, but they better like to eat a lot of eggs because you, we still have the same protein requirement. And so you have to eat a lot of eggs to get enough protein to maintain your lean mass. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously there's people that are, I don't know how many vegans listen to this show, but I'm sure there's a couple and they would, they would probably disagree with that statement. They would say they can get what they need from soy and pea protein and, and that sort of stuff. And, and they'll point to the, the vegan bodybuilders out there that obviously have a decent amount of muscle. You know, I would say that those guys, even though they're, you know, reasonably muscular, probably aren't at their, their, their potential. They're probably missing on that. And probably over a period of time, they'll tend to tend to fade away. But, uh, You know, there, there are people obviously that disagree with that statement. I think that's, that's certainly within people's right to do so. Well, and what I, uh, I, I agree. And, and what I'm talking about also about soy is back to the, the estrogenic situation where there's phytoestrogens in soy, in flax, and a lot of these foods that really, I can't understate the estrogenic compound issue. You know, especially if you're a man, you don't want elevated estrogen levels. You, you need some estrogen around, but you don't want them to be elevated by your food. And so we don't recommend anybody in, uh, eats any soy, flax. Uh, stay away from those to met, so they don't mess with your hormones. Where is it? I mean, because again, that statement is also controversial as to whether, you know, soy causes estrogenic effects. Where is the, the information that you would reference people that are, that want to look into that, that, that sort of support what you're saying. 
Do you know where that best uh, way to look about that would be? Well, yeah, we have a couple of posts on our site. I can I can give you the link to uh, about that they link to studies and information about soy and and, and estrogenic effects. I, I don't think anybody debates whether it has estrogenic effects. There may be some debate around is it good or not uh, to have that estrogen coming in from those food sources, um, especially in, in women and with certain conditions. But I have some information I can share on that. Yeah, I'd be good to link. Maybe Zach can link that in there because I know people. Yeah. I know that's a topic that that that's it, it, at the very least it's controversial. And I, you know, I don't eat any soy. I, I don't. I think it's an inferior product. I know certainly. You know, there's protease inhibitors and soy, soy doesn't absorb as well. I mean, it's one of the better plant proteins out there, but I know the FAO, the food and agriculture industry is going to switch over from, uh, to a new measurement of protein. I think they're calling it the protein digestibility of indispensable amino acids, which is a little different than what they'd used since the 1980. And, and, when, and when they do that, and I think they're going to adopt that over in the next year or so, that even more shows the difference between animal protein being superior, particularly dairy protein. In fact, whey is probably, like you said, the best source uh, yeah. of protein for as, as far as uh, uh, bioavailability and uh, you know things like leucine and, and some of the other indispensable amino acids. And so that is, you know, I don't disagree that animal protein is better. It's just that the estrogens in soy tend to be quote unquote phytoestrogens. And there's some yeah. question as to how, how closely that mimics an actual, the, the true estrogens that we, we actually produce naturally. And so it's interesting, but yeah, I would like to see that information. You know, if you've got some, if you've got it collated somewhere, I'm sure other people would like to read that too, because I think it's a yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's a it's a point of contention for a lot of people. Zach, um, what anything else? I think Craig's done a great job. We've gotten some great information here. Maybe uh, if you got any more questions, Zach, and then Craig, if not, maybe you can tell us what you've got coming up for the next year, where to find you. Tell us a little bit about the books you guys have out, and and, and we'll go from there. Cool. Yeah, no, I think it was great. You, you certainly shared a lot of great information. I, I know our listeners are going to love this one, but yeah, feel free to share where they can find you and we'll link, um, we'll link anything you send over those slides. And I know, um, I think we talked about one other thing to share on the show notes too. I can put that in there and sure. then our listeners can know where to find you. Well, thanks guys. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, we have a blog with lots of free information, briamindbodyhealth.com. Uh, we also have a site called keto-adapted.com where you can get support and uh, lots of lots of options there for support and things. Um, and then, of course, on social media, it's either Craig Emmerich or Maria Emmerich uh, that you can reach us at. Awesome. And, and then tomorrow we've got, I think, Zach, if I'm not mistaken, we've got Diana Rogers coming to talk about sustainable agriculture, which I think is another yep. piece of the puzzle here, which I think is going to be great. So anyway, wonderful. Um, thanks so much, Craig. All right. Thanks guys. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the human performance outliers podcast with hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.